reducing carbon emissions is hard, right? It's, it's not something that you can just sort of snap your finger and make happen overnight. I mean, we have our entire economy has largely been based on fossil fuel industries. So that's sort of just as a caveat to say the challenges are different in Europe than they are in the United States. I think in the European Union, you've got 27 countries, right? So those countries have very different sets of priorities. They have very different reliances on fossil fuel and gas and coal, and not just reliance. I mean, they have industries and jobs that are connected different ways to different types of energy. So in Europe, I think from my perspective, it's pretty remarkable that the European Union has been fairly unified in terms of a commitment to a reduction in carbon emissions and goals that they've set, particularly among some of the larger countries, Germany, France, Italy are, are taking significant steps in terms of putting in place regulations, not just on fuel industries, but also housing, insulation, constructories are, are seeing increases in regulations. Uh, you know, and one other thing I would just say is in the wake of the Ukrainian war, the invasion of the Ukraine, you know, you, the European Union has called for, all 27 countries have called for a 15% cut in gas usage. And that's pretty significant given that you know, many of these countries are almost exclusively reliant on on gas and most of it coming from Russia. So, you know, it's pretty remarkable that they've done that. Though so the challenges, of course, are a bit different. They're still really, really big, especially in states like here in Ohio, West Virginia, Texas, where so much of the economy is so reliant on oil and gas. So in addition, Cassell says the people in states like Ohio, New York and Michigan, they haven't forgotten what we all went through, the devastation that communities went back through going back to the 70s when so many factories shut down and all the jobs were lost in the name of globalization and progress. You know, many, particularly Democrats, frankly, were saying, oh, well, we'll we will take care of that. We will come up with a solution to deindustrialization. This is just a natural part of globalization. We'll all be better off. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, some Americans were certainly better off. But I think it really left a lot of states behind. And I think that legacy of positioning to a different economy and leaving large swaths of the population behind is really something that's hard to shake off. And I think that certainly, you know, states like West Virginia and Ohio and Oklahoma and Texas, you know, a Green New Deal, for example, makes a lot of sense. But it's premised on the idea that you're going to essentially make whole people who are going to lose their jobs, lose their industries, lose their communities you're going to come up with something. And looking back at the 1970s and early 1980s is not a great example, right? It sort of illustrates what happens with the industrialization and those promises. Right. Absolutely. I mean, whenever you have a change in technology, there's always the promise at the front end that it's going to be better on the back end. And for people that are left behind, it's it's usually not. And nobody ever helps them. And, and that's why it seems to me that a lot of voting patterns have shifted, right? That so many of the blue-collar workers that used to support Democrats are either not supporting them at all anymore or they're wavering. And that's why, for example, Tim Ryan is trying to woo them back in the upcoming Senate race. Right. I mean, I, I don't think it's always the case that people lose out. I mean, I think our movement toward industrialization happened at the same time, a very conservative change in government. You know, people like Ronald Reagan and, and those politicians afterwards made the case that government wasn't the solution, that we needed to cut back on fiscal policy, we needed to cut back on programs. The very moment we really need 
policies to essentially make whole communities that were affected by deindustrialization, we were getting politicians in office who felt like government shouldn't be doing anything. And if you look at, as I say, if you look at Europe, that has not been the case, that there are places in Germany and in France and in Belgium and lots of places where the move to coal hasn't decimated communities. It, it certainly changed them, but it's also been the case that both the European Union as well as national governments have really invested enormous amounts of money, not just in payments to individuals, but in infrastructure projects, right? So, you know, if you look at southeast Germany, for example, a region that's heavily dominated by coal, the federal government is now spending just enormous sums to put in place high-speed rail, high-speed Internet. They're putting in place infrastructure projects, which they believe, hope, obviously, that will help transform those economies to a more new economy and do it in a sustainable way. So in addition to covering salaries and paying wages that are lost, they're also building infrastructure that they hope will be the foundation for the economy in, in, the, in the next century. Um, so it doesn't, it's not a predetermined uh, outcome that the government doesn't do anything and just sort of leaves people behind. But um, I think it, at least in the United States, it, it is a challenge. And as you said, you know, we have a certainly a Senate, for example, uh, where you've got a, a, a number of states that are that have very small populations that have an outsized amount of control. You've got, you know, essentially you've got a Senate where you have 41 senators that represent as few as 75 million people that can block almost any legislation that comes up to a vote, even if 270 million Americans um, think differently. And you know, it's not just in the United States. Even within Ohio, you've got a similar kind of dynamic because of gerrymandering and other factors where you've got a state like Ohio that's 40% Republican and 40% Democrat, but you have nearly twice as many Republicans in the state house and you have nearly four times as many Republicans in the Senate. So, I mean, you know, those are just institutional factors that make it very, very difficult. But fundamentally, I do think it's, you know, it's a, it's a different politic in the United States than in, than in, uh, than in Western Europe.